It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, podcaster, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And on this final episode of this series... I was joined by two Brexit heavyweights, Professor Anand Menon, Director of the UK and Changing Europe, and by Matthew Elliott, the Chief Executive of Vote Leave during the referendum campaign, the mastermind that made it all happen. Now, we recorded this chat about a year ago. Its actual release has been delayed for lots of reasons, but uh, it's still very much worth a listen, although you need to bear in mind that lots has changed since this conversation was recorded. There's still some pretty huge revelations within it. It makes a fitting series finale. I'll be back at the end to discuss further, but let's get into it first of all. Here we go. Fair to say you were boss of the Leave campaign. I was the um, chief executive of Vote Leave, and Vote Leave sort of grew out of uh, Business of Britain, so yes, I'm one of those sort of leaders, who was bosses your, of the Leave campaign. Who was your opposite number in Remain? Was it um, Stuart Rose? I think Will Straw would be my sort of opposite oh, okay. number, yeah. Right. Yeah. Tell us about it. It must have been really exciting. It must have been more exciting than anything you've done before. I mean, you know, Business in Britain's all right. Uh, Taxpayers Alliance was obviously a big deal and all this sort of stuff. But that must have been even more exciting than anything, right? It was exciting, and it was a great year. It was very um, intense. Um, you know, there's a lot to take in, a lot going on. It seemed to sort of stretch out at times and then be very quick at other times. But it was a really um, great year, and of course, finishing with a fantastic result. Did you expect to win? From the point at which uh, David Cameron came back with a fairly lame deal, and one that was written off by you know, most quarters of the press... At that point, I thought we were slightly ahead. I thought the grounds were there for us to win. We still needed to fight um, a good campaign. We still need to make sure that uh, yeah, we got our message across, but the grounds were there for a victory at that point. Can I just blow his trumpet for a minute, which I'm not going to do again in this whole podcast series, but just no, say... No, no, blowing trumpet's good. I remember I met you for a coffee in March, April, right. before the referendum, and I said... Oh my word, Matthew, this is turning into a car crash, isn't it? Because you'd had a series of sort of mishaps. And you said to me, wait till Perda, we have a plan, it'll all be fine. And I thought thought to myself, yeah, right. And I will now eat humble pie. It turned out exactly (laughs) as you predicted then. Uh, Well, no, let's just... Was there, like, uh, again, I don't want to be pejorative, but was it like an evil master plan in the sense that... Um, people like uh, Dominic Cummings always talk about yeah. as as if you had this plan in place and you you know you implemented it and it just worked. It just you all along you had this up your sleeves and it sort of feels almost inevitable with hindsight. I think the one big call that we got right was basically having um, a non UKIP based campaign. Uh, when I set up um, Business for Britain back in 2013, after David Cameron's Bloomberg speech. The whole idea was, right, what sort of vehicle do we need? We need a, a vehicle which is non-UKIP-based, which going to attract people. What's wrong with UKIP? Um, UKIP uh, wasn't really the cup of tea of many of the Conservative and Labour and business uh, levers who we attracted. They wanted something more mainstream. Was, um, that, was that the only problem with UKIP, or is it the fact that they are nutters 
was it not a fruitcakes and looms? Closet racist. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that they had a different vision for Brexit than we did, in the sense that for us, take back control, you know, sovereignty, mm. the whole legal dimension, uh, the whole sort of you know push for free trade. That they were big things for us. I think it's fair to say for many people involved in UKIP, the whole EU migration side of things was more important. In Tim Shipman's book, mm. he says that towards the end of May, just around when the ONS figures came out for migration, yeah. quotes Dominic Cummings as saying to Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, at this point, all we talk about is immigration. I mean, didn't you just become UKIP light by the end of the campaign? I don't think so. I think, obviously, uh, migration was part of it. And obviously, taking back control of our borders and deciding you know, independently, as of the UK, what our migration policy should be was a key part of it. But if you note, we never talked about you know, numbers. We never had a figure like sort of tens of thousands like the Conservative Party has. Mm. And in fact, we went out, out of our way to talk about how we wanted the best and the brightest from right across the world to you know, come and live and work in the UK. So I feel we had quite a liberal policy all the way through, but one which is controlled by the UK Parliament. But Michael Gove spoke about tens of thousands in May, June. He um, said that he said we cannot achieve our target if we're part of free movement. Now he didn't actually say I approve of this target, admittedly, but he said we can't achieve this target. The key thing that was emphasized was always the control aspect, the fact that the MPs who would ultimately make the decision about the type of migration we have to the UK would be democratically accountable to the UK electorate rather than, you know, EU commissioners or hmm. um, you know, being very unaccountable. It's an edit. Someone said something boring or illegal. Maybe told some slanderous story about Boris Johnson. You'll never know. Where do you fit into Brexit now? Because you have never been elected to anything, as far as I'm aware. No. I mean, you led the Leave campaign. Um, you know, what, what is your role now? My role? Well, you know, editor-at-large of Brexit Central. We try and you know, put out the news about Brexit and make the positive case for it and, you know, fight our bit there. Mm. Um, I do that. I've got no, you know, direct role in the whole um, Brexit process. Shouldn't you have a role, though? You've done it. You know. <laughs> you know but great. Take responsibility. i done this. I won this campaign. So shouldn't there be some sort of... I mean, shouldn't, aren't you responsible for something, somehow for what happens next? This goes back to the fact that um, Vote Leave and the Leave campaign... Um, you know, wasn't a political party mm. running on a ma- manifesto you know, to get into office. It's very different to the Scottish referendum when, of course, when Alex Salmon did his um, white paper, yes. you know, he would have been the person sitting down with David Cameron to negotiate what an independent Scotland would look like. So yeah. when he had his manifesto, um, you know, it was right that he published that. But on the Leave side of things, the Vote Leave side of things, you know, we were never going to have that, that mandate. And, of course, with what happened you know, after the referendum, um, in terms of uh, the leadership election, yeah. uh, it meant that you know, several of the Vote Leave people who might have been involved in the whole process yes. of uh, Brexit you know, didn't have that place. Are you a confidant of the current regime at all? I mean, are you called into Downing Street to talk Brexit? Um, I talk about Brexit with all sorts of people, not least on this podcast. <laughs> podcast. Are, you, are you called into Downing you, you're, Never. You're an I'm sure you, you hear the tone of bitterness in my voice. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You would be in and out of there. No, no, yeah. They always stop me at the gate. I try. Very well, you asking the question. But you should have the question asked of you, surely. Um, that's mad, isn't it? That the side that wins, what you just walk away and go right. You deal with it. 
that doesn't seem... It's not really a case of you deal with it. It's more we were the team who were involved in the referendum campaign, officially designated by the um, Electoral Commission to represent that point of view. You know, once the referendum had happened, you know, our mandate finished. But and, I said, that just seems odd. Would you, would you like to have had a mandate? Would you like to be now sitting in Dexu in some capacity? It's funny. I sort of see the whole Brexit process as being a bit of, um, in a sense, a relay race. So if you go back to the um, perhaps the early 1990s, start there. Yeah. Yeah. You had the um, uh, people like Bill Cash and the the bastards who were in the cabinet yeah. um, at the time, and then of course, like later, you had um, you know James Goldsmith and the uh, referendum party. Yeah. And then perhaps under Tony Blair, you had groups like Business for Sterling and the No Euro uh, campaign. Yes. You know, the democracy movement came into it at some point and UKIP, of course, played a huge role. Mm. And Nigel Farage in terms of, you know, pressuring uh, David Cameron to uh, give a referendum and you know, his role in getting that referendum pledge. And then you had, you know, Business for Britain and then you had the role played yes. by Vote Leave. Mm. So I see it like a relay race where... Except Bill Cash is still running, always... isn't he? He's done a marathon. <laughs> <laughs> I think he always will be running on this. <laughs> so who did you hand the baton on over to on, you know, whatever, the 26th of June 2016? I really, was it Monday, was, it? Um, you know, David Davis and the Dexter team. OK, so now they've got to take it forward. Yeah. Um, are they, I mean, we've discussed whether they're running well at the moment. Do they take it over the, the finishing line? Is that what's going to happen? Are they going to finish the race? Or is this a never-ending relay race? I think that um, Dexu will uh, you know, take it up to the end of the uh, negotiations. Then, of course, you get to the period when we start talking about trade deals more and have the ability to negotiate and sign yeah. those new trade deals across the world, where you know, Liam Fox's department will become um, you know, really important. And you know, Crawford Faulkner, as the government's you know, chief trade negotiator, his role will be massively important at that point. So... In a sense, the baton is passed on yet again to another set of players. Can I ask you a slightly nerdy question, which is, what do you think of transition, or the notion that we should have a transitional period? Um, I think there always was going to be that sort of period. Um, I always preferred the term um, implementation period. There always was going to be that period from you know, Britain being in the EU and being completely outside of the EU where things would have to change. So I've always been you know, quite relaxed with having some sort of period there. Um, it Even with the court? It definitely should it shouldn't be should not be uh, sort of never ending. You know, mm -hmm. the whole if if it was I think longer than you know two years if it sort of creeps over that, I think there'd be lots of voters up and down the country will think well I thought we need voted to leave you know back in 2016, you know why hasn't it happened yet? Um, you're saying that in uh, you know a year or two's time or whatever if if transition goes on too long, that um, people will start to think why have we not left? Um, Anand might have a more nuanced position, or let's face it, a wonky position on that, because you pay attention to opinion polls. How do you know what people will think? Because clearly you got it right in terms of the referendum. So how come, should we listen to you more than the academics in terms of understanding what people want? And if that is the case, how do you know what people want? Um, and of course, during the campaign, and the head of the campaign, we did massive amounts of... Uh, polling and focus groups, but also it's the chats you have with people, mm. you know, up and down the country. You know, both of us do loads of speaking, mm. you know, right across the UK. I often find it's those chats often in, you know, bars when you're having a sort of 
pint and burger at night or in the cabs where you often pick up lots of information about what people think. I thought what was quite telling about the general election was how um, actually a lot of the vote wasn't about Brexit, despite the fact that the Conservatives tried to make it about Brexit. It was about wider domestic matters. And to me, what that said was actually many voters think, well, Brexit, you know, done and dusted. We voted on that. You know, that happened back in 2016. Now we want politicians to look at domestic matters. So I think if when it comes to, let's say, 2021, 2022, you know, we're still in this transition period and, you know, politicians aren't in the position to be able to, you know, define what migration to the UK looks like and aren't in the position to be able to sign trade deals across the world, voters will, say, will then say, well, why hasn't that happened yet? But who would they vote for then? I mean, where, does that well, mean that sort of Nigel and Aaron come back and we start again or...? You know, I'm confident it will have happened by that point, because I think that actually both um, the Conservative Party and Theresa May and actually Jeremy Corbyn all realise they've got to get Britain through Brexit. Yeah, they've got to implement the decision of the people. Why are you why are you confident? I mean, I suppose what I'm trying to get at here really is, are you one of these magic people who just somehow can take the pulse of the population? You know, that you it's not coincidence that you happen to find yourself on the side of right. You can you 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 know there's no you're not just happen to be in the right place at the right time. You have some sort of ability to read people, and obviously people equals politics. I'll accept that compliment. <laughs> well, would you say you are? I mean, is it is it just luck that you know you have a certain ideology if you like you believe in certain things and politics has come to meet you, or are, do you think you do have some sort of ability to read the people and the the, the, the political landscape better than others? I've never thought about it in those terms before. I've just always gone out there and sort of campaigned <laughs> for what I believed in. So, you know, going right back to the um, early 2000s, I felt that, you know, Gordon Brown was massively increasing spending, increasing taxes, and I felt there needs to be a group to campaign for taxpayers and campaign against that, what I saw as being sort of reckless fiscal policy. Okay. Um, and then, you know, obviously with the European question coming up, I felt there needs to be a group to... You know, represent those uh, business people and people like me who wanted David Cameron to you know, make changes during the renegotiation. And if those changes were sufficient, you know, would have happily voted to remain in a reformed EU uh, with powers brought back to the UK. Uh, but then I found that wasn't going to work out and you know, powers weren't going to come back. So I was one of these people who was on the leave side. So my mantra was always change or go. So I think that um, I've always sort of picked the issue as they come along and just sort of try, try to work out how they align with my principles. How key has the media been to all that? I mean, you mentioned, obviously, the Taxpayers' Alliance. I mean, the Taxpayers' yeah. Alliance, basically, success is based on, you might disagree, but from my point of view as a journalist, having a 24-hour media line. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> that was, <laughs> um, seems pretty obvious, really, when you think about it, but um, that's how you get yourself uh, quoted here, there, and everywhere and achieve uh, a certain amount of uh, well, both influence and uh, visibility, I suppose. Um, and then you mentioned earlier, you said that uh, the point at which you thought Leave might win the referendum was when David Cameron came back from his renegotiation yeah. and the media rejected it largely. Yeah. So how, how key is the media to your, your various successes? Communicating with the public is key, um, but of course it's changed. If I go right back to um, when I was at university in the late 1990s, um, I worked in various um, think tanks. And I remember that point. You used to you know, publish your pamphlet in hard copy. Um, you'd post copies out to journalists. Mm. 
you perhaps if you use the the fax machine in the corner of the office and you know, fax out press releases to multiple journalists across uh, London, and fax you know, get there. your message out that way. Then, like you were saying, you know, um, you know mid two thousands when uh, TPA was launched, um, obviously uh, the media were massively important and you know, still are extremely important. At that point, though, um, social media was very much in its infancy. Um, as was you know, the extensive use of websites, really, mm. and of course now um, you know Twitter is king, and you've got you've got a president now in the US who basically ran his presidential campaign and his presidency <laughs> through his Twitter account. Do you do you understand all that? So, if we were to ask you questions about the the mechanics of the Facebook campaign and the targeting of certain demographics, would you be able to talk to us about that? Because it, I mean, I'm just too old to get. I was going to think about you two. Yeah. Ask a question about <laughs> yeah, it. Well, this you, is the point. Yeah, I want you to ask. I want you to ask yourself a question, and I want you to answer it. That's what I want. <laughs> you should ask Dominic <laughs> when he comes in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's on top of this, and people like um, Henry Dezout, who is our digital director, he's really on top of it as well. I know the basics. I know it's really important. I appreciate all of that. And, and are you, know, you comfortable there was nothing dodgy or dubious or Russian or going on? Very confident. What really astounded me was after the uh, general election, you had write-ups in the um, in the Guardian saying how brilliant Labour's campaign was and how brilliant momentum were at um, you know targeting voters using Facebook and this sort of thing and really honing their message. They were basically just doing what we were doing on the Vote Leave campaign because we got criticised by The Guardian for doing that. So uh, I think it's a double standard there. It's just a new yeah, way of politics. But they lost, so that makes them pure. That's the answer, you see. Don't they, tell them that. Well, I know, yeah, they, they do. Actually, on that, do you, do you think Jeremy Corbyn's a lever? Uh, I do. And always has why? been. Um, why do I think that? Yeah. Um, uh, Did he come up and shake your hand heartily the day after? <laughs> <laughs> I understand that during the referendum, he came up to somebody um, from the Labour Leave campaign and basically said, good on you, keep up the good work. Um, well, Kate Hoey? Because she was, who else was in the Labour Leave campaign? I'm not, not going to name no, names. that man, what's his name, Graham? But um, I think that um, both John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn, their voting record, um, you know, up to the point at which they became uh, sort of leaders of their party, was a Eurosceptic voting record. And also, I think, ideologically, they see the EU as a different way. They see it more as being perhaps a capitalist club. And they see it as being the, the boss's club and you know, forcing regular, you know, um, undermining workers' rights and stopping things like nationalisations and uh, all that sort of stuff. Which was language you had Boris Johnson using, rather oddly, during the campaign. Can I we just pick up on your language there? Language you had Boris Johnson using. Can you make Boris Johnson say things? Because no. that seems unlikely. <laughs> Boris is an independent thinker, <laughs> for sure. I mean, that might be a good skill to have. But, yeah, well, the, that brings us back to question one, I suppose, which we've actually managed to talk for 25 minutes without actually asking. Um, you can see why Corbyn and McDonnell are anti-EU. If they are anti-EU, there's an argument against the EU from the left. Why? What's your problem with the EU? My problem was always, basically, it's a sovereignty question. It's basically, you know, where are laws made? And I'm a great believer that law should be made you know, here uh, in Parliament, in the House of Commons, you know, democratically controlled by the public. House and to me, that's... I just carry on my train of thought. Yeah, right. um, to me, um, the lawmaking is the important part. And if that power is then used to nationalise things or if it's then used to um, privatise things or whatever, 
it's the important is made by democratically elected politicians. So, so for me, the sovereignty point was king. So you horrified. The Lords are not democratically elected. So how do, where does that work? Are you going to campaign for, to close down the House of Lords? I really thought through the issue of the House of Lords. Um, what do you mean you haven't thought through it? You just led the Leave campaign, for goodness sake. You just sat here <laughs> and nothing said... To do the House of you Lords. just sat here and said it's all about sovereignty and democratically elected. Did you not notice there's 800 people in ermine <laughs> sitting there who have got no democratic mandate whatsoever? You can't tell me you hadn't thought about the House of Lords. I've never really thought about this issue. Oh, come on. I, I find that hard to believe. I'm naturally a bit of a small-c conservative, so you know, not want to sort of change the status quo. But aren't you then horrified by the withdrawal bill and the power grab from the executive? I mean, all this stuff about parliament, all this stuff about sovereignty, and all of a sudden, very respectable, legally-minded people like Dominic Grieve are saying, but this is outrageous. This is just a massive power grab by the executive, and it is constitutionally wrong. What I find really interesting is that those people who make that argument now in the 40-odd years when we were in the EU, we're still in the EU, of course, and having to implement all of those directives and regulations through statutory instruments, they never complained once when the executive used their powers to basically ram all of this stuff through rather than referring it to Parliament. So I think that there's a slight sort of two-facedness about, about what they're saying. But there was a different process, wasn't there? I mean, there was at least the possibility of parliamentary scrutiny and there were votes at the European level. Our government got to vote as European. It's, it's not the same thing as government just saying, oh, here we go, let's pass a few measures and not tell Parliament because we don't need to. The amount of EU legislation that was brought in you know, without proper parliamentary accountability was you know, phenomenal. You know, 6% of our laws, according to the House of Commons Library, uh, you know, uh, come from the EU. Uh, but <laughs> you can say that. that. <laughs> I think that's a fairly controversial figure. Yes. Figure. I, and I don't, I, I'm not going to argue They're about this one because I, I can't say, but I suspect Andad might have an opinion on that. Well, I mean, there are different figures bandied around, aren't there? I mean, the range is from about 13 to about 60-odd, and I suspect if you strip out the things that don't actually apply to us that are about uh, Danish fishing vessels and things like this and the things that are measures that simply replace old measures, which are all counted in the 60%, then the figure is significantly lower, but it's still, it's high, but lower. It's high. Yeah. But you're not saying that 60% of parliamentary time has been used to examine all of that. No, no, absolutely not. A fraction. Not. Yeah, so it's but been I, under-examined. But a, a, it's through. an open question, isn't it, as to whether that's because of the nature of the EU system or just because our parliamentarians didn't bother to do it very well. I think it's the nature of the EU. Okay, but right, let's, let's stick with the old Great Repeal Bill or whatever it's called, the EU Withdrawal Bill. Two things. One... Henry VIII. What do we think about Henry VIII? I don't get this, this Henry VIII power thing, right? For some reason, this country, and I'm talking to somebody who was raised in Scotland, so I didn't go through this, is always going on about Henry VIII. Talking to someone who knew him. <laughs> <laughs> but kids are talking about the Tudors from... Like, this country is obsessed with the Tudors. So calling something in Henry, VIII, Henry VIII power doesn't seem that bad, because we're all raised to believe Henry VIII is this, like really good figure. I don't quite understand. Well, Matthew's from Leeds. He'll be like me. He thinks the wrong side won in 1485. So we don't talk <laughs> about the Tudors ever. I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Man, Man United? Is that who you're talking about? Is that, is that um, it seems to me that it's about uh, degrees here. You are willing... You want sovereign power back with Westminster, but you're willing to live with this undemocratic House of Lords. Uh, I'm maybe putting words in your mouth. And I just wonder how where the degrees are with Brexit, because you want sovereignty, but presumably you are concerned about the economy as well. So there's a presumably a degree, there's a line beyond which you would say, this will damage the economy so much I would rather stay in the EU. But you made a decision that coming out of the EU will not damage the economy either at all, 
or enough, or indeed it would cost a little improve I the think economy. It would help the economy. Yeah. That was my point of view, still is my point of view. <laughs> okay, well, let's turn that on its head. You backed Brexit for democratic principle reasons. Yeah. So, presumably, even if it turns out not to be good for the economy, let's say you turn out to be wrong. I'm not saying you will, let's say you do. Is there a cost that would be too high? I think it's going to help the economy. No, but just I hypothetically. <laughs> I mean, some people would say, so Nigel Farage said, there are some things more important than money. You know, it's worth paying, if we end up paying a cost for reducing migration, it would be worth it. Would you pay a unspecified cost for Brexit? I'm not going to play these hypothetical games okay. because I'm a strong believer that basically, you know, Brexit will help the UK economy because I think the EU is going in a more um, protectionist, more regulatory direction. I think the um, Eurozone is a tinderbox that's about to explode. You see what's going on with the Italian banks and how they're being propped up. I think this is not a club that we want to be part of long term. And actually our future lies with the 80% of countries outside of the EU who are experiencing higher economic growth. They're the ones we need to build you know, greater trade links with, and that's where our future lies. But they're blinking miles away. Geography doesn't matter in terms of trade. But if you're making a car, right... I mean, with the best will in the world, I've never been to New Zealand, I'm sure it's lovely, we're not going to have a tightly integrated, just-in-time supply chain making cars with New Zealand. Have you seen how many cars we're exporting to China? You know, all those... Do you actually know how Jack to make Land a car? Rover, you know, what, Rolls Royce sort of Yeah, exactly. All these people go about, oh, if you're making a car. Nobody knows how to make cars, do they? You've no idea how they well, make a car. Well, you program a robot, it's obvious. But... Uh, Okay, exporting it is one thing, but making it. I mean, one of the things about Europe is we make stuff together. I mean, that OECD report yesterday, one of the things it says, okay, is the reason why our exports haven't boomed after a devaluation is because of global supply chains. That means a lot of the stuff we export, bits have been made in loads of different countries. You can't do that sort of manufacturing with a country that's miles away. You still need ships. You've still got weather so you're trying to tell me that you know Britain, this you know historic you know trading nation, which was basically a global you know trading partner at the beginning of the um, 20th century, you know international trade has always been in our blood. Well, you know, we always have traded globally. Um, I'm not saying we can't trade globally. What I'm saying is the nature of trade and the nature of manufacturing and actually the predominance of services is now totally different. The, the economy is very different now to what it was 120 years ago. And because of that, the European Union allows us to do things with our near neighbours that we wouldn't have thought of doing back then, but which we might miss if we can't do them anymore. The key point is I don't think we will miss them, because I'm confident that we will get that free trade deal. Okay. Um, I would just raise the fact that you are not at Lego buying age yet, are you? Not quite. Yeah, you see, that's when you'll hit you. You know, like any normal, like any normal <laughs> person, right? Brexit's happened. You want Brexit to be a success if you're a normal person. Like, you know, I'm not in touch with the, the normal people like you are, Matt. <laughs> but I, talk speaking as a normal person, he gets right? bees in his bonnet. You just want it to work out. I know I bring up the Lego issue every time, but it's. I think it's a fair point because as a normal person, the way Brexit has affected me is my holiday was flipping expensive in the summer, and Lego is more expensive, and I buy a lot of Lego, right? Not for myself, which I point out, definitely not. Um, although I am quite looking forward to the um, fire mech from the Lego Ninjago movie that I'll be making next week Um, but um, is that not a a fair point though because for a lot of people what they've noticed about Brexit and it may be great somewhere down the line is that things are getting more expensive that is really the only thing I can say I've noticed from Brexit and that I think is the case for a lot of people yes 
if you look at all the polling on this, you know, people still want Brexit to go ahead. Yeah. There's a really interesting poll. Yeah, I'm not um, saying, I mean, yes, it goes ahead and hope it's a success, but there is a short-term pain. Is that not fair to say? What have I gained since Brexit? I can see some negatives. I'm struggling to see the positive the now. We're process, aren't we? Yeah, and I'm seeing negatives now. And I can see, yes, down the line, when we've got a free trade Lego, free trade Lego, yes, a free trade Lego agreement, where we just bring in loads of Lego on the cheap from Denmark. That'd be lovely. But um, and right some now, of think right of the now there's a short, well. I mean, it's not a huge pain, because oh, I buy a lot of Lego, I don't buy that much Lego. But, um, but there is, I can see negatives at the moment, and I can see positives down the line, but there's a, there's a gap, right? I won't really go along with these negatives, and I think that the positives you know, are coming down the line faster than you think. If you think of those trade agreements, that Liam Fox is busy negotiating across the world and getting all teed up, yeah. you know, they'll be coming down the line. If you think of the business leaders across the world who are thinking, actually, you know, the UK is going to get this you know, free trade deal with the EU, it wants to have free trade with our countries. Generally speaking, we know the, e- the UK tends to be less regulatory than the rest of the EU. Yeah, that would be a place to do business. You know, the You're talking about the future again, though. I've, I've got an issue now with And what about politics. those economists? Well, you, uh, the economists for leave, people like Andrew oh, no. Lillico, who yeah. early on in the campaign were saying quite openly, yeah, it'll be about 20 years of pain, but then we'll adjust and it will be better for it. Now, I get the impression that someone might have whispered in his ear, Andrew, this isn't the best campaigning strategy I've ever heard in my whole life. You might want to tone it down. But that was the line. Yes, it, things will be better, but let's not kid ourselves economic adjustment hurts it hurts the people whose jobs go in order to create new jobs better jobs whatever jobs uh but adjustment will make some people worse off what's what i found interesting during the campaign was actually the different types of um businesses for example so you do get those you know more corporate multinational businesses who you span several countries whose CEO generally lasts about uh, you know, four years, generally speaking, for a CEO of a FTSE company. And they tend to be more on the Remain side. They want to sort of stick with what they knew. They want to stick with the EU. And then you have the business leaders who are head of um, private companies, known as family companies, people like um, Sir James Dyson or people like um, Zanti Bamford from uh, JCB, Lord Bamford, sorry, from JCB. They're the ones who are actually thinking, What's good for our company and our consumers in the medium to long term? And they could see the direction of travel in the EU and they didn't like where it was going. They could see the opportunities which would lie outside the EU in terms of trade and Britain's position in the world. And they picked that path. And I think that their vision is the right one for Britain to follow. Is Andrew Lillico a real economist? Yes. Is he? I mean, he, I find him really terrifying. I've met him, and he's, like, really normal. And then he goes on Twitter and says mad things. He, like, comes out with these, like... He's, like, a normal person. You have a normal conversation. And he goes on Twitter and He says, has opinions beyond but, economics, it's true. But they're really, like, strong opinions on Twitter. <laughs> and you meet him in real life, and he's just, like, a normal person. You have a normal conversation. I always find and that you find slightly... this unusual. Isn't that true with every well, single right, maybe, person yeah, on Twitter? Fair enough, OK. Um, let's finish up with the features. The features. <laughs> Best thing! Worst thing. First of all, the best thing and the worst thing. Right. Well, let's do the other way around. I keep, let's do the other way around. Let's finish positively. So, what's going to be the worst thing about Brexit? The worst thing about Brexit. Um, I'm going to give you an honest one. I think fewer reasons, or work-related reasons, I should say, to go to Brussels. I spent two years there working in the European Parliament. I actually quite liked it. I quite like going out in the evening and sitting on the Grand Place and having a beer there 
and there'll be less work-related trips to Brussels. And it'll be harder to take a trip to Brussels because you'll have to get your blue passport out at customs and all the rest of it, and it'll be a massive I bag. think you sort of do at the moment. We're not part of the Schengen area. Well, all right, fair enough, that's a fair point, but you won't be able to bring as much beer back from Brussels, will you? <laughs> right? Because there'll be like customs like there used to be. Is that fair? <laughs> when I was a kid, when you were a kid, and when you were a kid, you, know, you could only bring back so many cigarettes and booze and there was all that duty-free stuff, and that will presumably happen again. I've only known life inside the EU. Oh, so have I, but, we, but there was a time when you had duty-free and you were only allowed a certain amount of stuff you are allowed to bring back, right? There was. Don't look at me like this. Is the, <laughs> yes, this didn't happen. Will this was a thing oh, right, that okay. happened. Okay? It was. Oh, well, there we go. Anyway, I, well, okay, maybe not. Who knows? I suppose it depends on the agreement we get. But, but it'd be um, VAT. For I'm you not trying to like. Right, I'm not trying to talk Brexit down. Yeah. We just have to accept there are going to be downsides, and that might be one of them. But maybe it won't. I suppose, like you say, it depends on the depends on the deal. Um, the best thing. What's going to be the best thing about Brexit? The trade deals. Right. That's not a good thing. That's a very uh, abstract thing. All right. What are the trade deals going to mean for me, for normal people, all these normal people that you're in touch with, that you chat to when you go around the country? For Britain's economic future, we need to be able to make sure that we can access economies right across the world. So not just focus on the EU, but make sure we have the right trade deals with countries in the rest of the world to be able to sell to them, buy things from them, um, and make sure you know, trade can flow freely. And I believe that if we stay in the EU, that wouldn't happen because the EU tends to be more protectionist. But outside of the EU, the UK will start being more free trading like it always used to be and reclaim that sort of free trade global legacy. So will it mean cheaper stuff or will it mean a bigger economy, which is good for everyone? Or both? I think it will mean uh, a bigger economy. Yeah. I also think it means certain things will be cheaper as well because the EU has brought in protectionist trade barriers that's made certain goods more expensive to come to the UK. Barbecue charcoal. I bought some barbecue charcoal the weekend. It was from Paraguay. Presumably that'll be we can make a trade deal with Paraguay and get cheaper barbecue charcoal, right? That's that's a possibility. Well that's a good there's there's a there's a concrete reason that it'll be good. You'll get cheaper barbecues. Yeah? Um let's move on to uh in the unlikely event that this podcast has proved insufficiently enlightening. Is that what it's called? You should know by now. That's right. I can't remember. Absolutely I, I get correct. it wrong every yeah. time. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Recommendations. Because, I mean, the whole point of this podcast is you have to accept Brexit is mammoth. And people want to understand it. People want to know about it. Um, you know, you run Brexit Central. Clearly, you're, you're pumping out information um, to help people understand it. Perhaps, um, where would you point people? Uh, uh, you know, a thing. Say, if you want to understand Brexit, go and read, look at. So I can't do, say Brexit Central. Do this. No, I don't. Think you can because Jonathan Isabey's already done that one. Can I say Change or Go? What's that? So Change or Go was um, a big publication that Business of Britain did. Um, before the general election of 2015, which basically went through all the different sectors and all the different issue and policy areas. Okay. And basically said, you know, how does the EU affect those different policy areas? And what might life look like outside the EU, um, you know, post-Brexit, you know, for that policy area? What sort of agreement should we okay. go for? So if you want a very detailed look, policy-orientated look at things, I haven't seen a book since then which actually has all the different policy areas covered quite as compre- comprehensively as that. And Ed, what are you going to... You, you run it, you've been on so often, you must be running out of recommendations. Well, We've had your book, you, book, know, you can't have another one. Um, oh, yeah, 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 another one. One thing I'm looking forward to, um, 
James Graham, the playwright. James um, Graham, hopefully coming on this podcast. Said he will. There you go. That's, that's another one. He should do. Be great. Yes. Who, of course, um, wrote This House and other plays like that. Um, he's doing some sort of Brexit series, which I'm looking forward to watching. Anand, give me a, give me a recommendation that's not your book. No, I'm going to read... Yes, go to UK and a Changing no. Europe. Obviously, they're wonderful people and go to their website. And as well as that, what else should people do? Let me plug someone else today. Matthew Goodwin has written a book with a couple of collaborators that tr- explains the Brexit vote. Who voted what and why? Uh, when did he write this? Oh, about 100 years ago. No, about six months ago. Yeah, I think he did that on his one. You have to come on Oh, else. did he? Yeah. God, he recommended his own book. So Here we go. Well, my read of the week, nothing to do with Brexit. I've just read Robert Harris's Munich, and it's fantastic. Will that help us explain, will that un- understand Brexit? It might, because is that actually, is that like Fatherland? Is does, it made up, or is it real? What it does is... Fiction it, or non-fiction, as the Well, story. it's very hard to tell, which is the secret of his books. But what it does is it makes you think about Munich in a whole... It made me think about Munich in a wholly different way. Because I, I went into the book thinking one thing, and I went out of it being a lot more sympathetic to the characters than I had been. This is Nazis. This is appeasement and all that. This is Chamberlain. Rather yeah. I didn't come out feeling more sympathetic to the Nazis. No, I came out feeling more you sympathetic to the words in your mouth. <laughs> There's our news line for this podcast. Um, okay. <laughs> so there you go. Matthew Elliott did Brexit for reasons of sovereignty and democracy. But in his own words didn't think about the House of Lords. Oof. And then there's his claim that Jeremy Corbyn expressed support for the Leave campaign while campaigning for Remain. Double oof. Um, I suspect there might be some people who dispute that, not least Jeremy Corbyn. But there you go, he's made the claim he was leader of the Leave campaign. He would know, you'd expect. Still, Cheaper Paraguayan barbecue charcoal on the way after Brexit, so uh, that'll be a good thing, hey? That's a big revelation. Although, admittedly, it was only a revelation by me. As you heard, Matthew and Anand didn't really seem to want to get into the minutiae of the Paraguayan barbecue charcoal market. I hope you'll agree that that was quite a chat. And if you liked it and uh, have yet to listen to our back catalogue, there's another 25 episodes for you to get through on the UK in a Changing Europe website, which is ukandeu.ac.uk. Or you can find them on my website, which is james-miller, and that's Miller with an A, james-miller.com. You can find the full list of recommendations on my site too. And I will stick a blog post up there soon, which crunches the numbers to determine which episode was the most popular, uh, funny places where it got listened to, and all that sort of stuff. If you want to get in touch with me, read this episode, or indeed the whole series, or even better, to give me some more podcasting work, given that this series is now over, I am at Political Yeti on Twitter or politicalyeti at gmail.com on the email. If you want to get in touch with UK in a Changing Europe to urge them to employ me and make a second series, then go to their website or tweet them at UK and EU. Feel free to arrange a thunderclap in my support, whatever that is. Given this is the last episode in the series, I must thank all my guests over the last 12 months and everyone at UK and a Changing Europe, particularly the roster of wonks that have joined me. That's Anand Menon, uh, Simon Usherwood, Catherine Barnard, Alan Wager, Sir John Curtis, Helen Drake, although she only seemed to be allowed to come on once. She was a, a good guest and I'd like to have had her on more often. And Matthew Goodwin, who I think 
found it all a bit silly and consequently only came on once. Uh, although his book did get recommended more than any other, I think, in the end. Uh, and all the staff at uh, UK and Changing Europe, including Nav and Ben, who actually make sure this goes online every week. The music throughout has been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. I've been James Miller, and this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a Changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Thank you and goodbye.